you, Jake. Thank you, worship ministry. I would invite you to take your copy of the Lord's Word and turn to Genesis. Genesis chapter 11, verses 27 through chapter 12, verse 9, as we look together at the life of Abraham. This summer, we were in the book of Habakkuk together, and I was talking with someone who watches our services online, and they were saying, so are you eventually going to get to the New Testament? I see that you love the Old Testament, and I do love the Old Testament, and I just said, hey, you're kind of new. I just want you to know that I was in the Gospel of John for like two and a half years, so uh, we will definitely get back to the New Testament, and I've reached way more from the New Testament than the Old, Uh, but we do want to go back to this special season in the life of our church and look at the father of the faith, and that is the life of Abraham. So back in 2019, our church began a journey of a decision to not only adopt a master plan of what not just our building would look like, but what ministry would look like, believing that God was not only a God who had worked at First Baptist, but continues to, and we believe that he's going to continue to do so. And then also remembering and being reminded that when it comes to buildings and and resource they're they're just things the important thing is the gospel ministry of what's transpiring and god has allowed us the building that we're sitting in right now to be used as a tool the project that's coming together the all the changes to this campus and facility these are tools to do the calling of god which is ministry that that which we've been called to so in 2019 we began a journey called the harvest where we talked about um, believing that the God had, that believing that God had led our church to make some changes to our uh, facility and adopting a master plan, we took that first step, that first three-year commitment, and God just showed up in a very big and vivid way. And we knew that the second step would come in the fall of 2023, and here it is now rapidly approaching. So the next two months, we're going to now talk about this second step towards uh, setting aside funds to be able to pay for what we believe that God is leading and has led us to. But more importantly than that, the, the thing that I was so grateful for during the harvest campaign, which took place in 2019, was how it brought the church together, was how God brought us together in one heart and mind. And I'm prayerful that God will do the same thing this time as we consider the mark of faith as we begin this. This will be two months. It will be in the life of Abraham, and we'll be talking about the building as well some in the coming weeks, but I'm prayerful that God would do again a work of unity and a a work of grace amongst us. So as I look back on that time in 2019, I've seen and I saw and now I've seen again what God has done. So I am looking forward with anticipation that God would do a great work in us again. But for today, we're going to be in the life of Abraham. In order to understand the life of Abraham, we're going to lay some groundwork going forward. Uh, This morning's message is titled, Into the Unknown. Into the Unknown, again in this series, a mark or the mark of faith. Our main statement this morning is this, is faith is letting go of what we can see and hold to lay hold of a better world. Faith is letting go of what we could see and hold to lay hold of a better world. And this is captured 
even in the very first part of the story of Abraham's life, he is willing to let go of what is most tangible, to lay hold of what is intangible, but is secure by the promises of God. And this is what we're going to see today in the story. So beginning in verse 27, chapter 11, it says this. Now these are the generations of Terah. Like, Terah, I thought this was about Abram. Well, Terah is his dad. These are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the lands of his, land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him excuse me, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. It's interesting how often trees occur in Abraham's story. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. So our statement today is this. Faith is letting go of what we can see and hold to lay hold of a better world. And I'm persuaded this encapsulates the, the life of faith and the first step of faith we see today in the man Abraham. So how do you take that first step of faith in order to be able to let go of the tangible to lay hold of the intangible? Well, first it requires an honest look at reality. Frankly, an honest look at reality is the prerequisite of faith. Friends, you're only going to let go of the tangible if you're persuaded 
that what is intangible, that what you cannot see, is better. Now, we live in a very sanitized age. We live in a very sanitized age, even when you consider just a few generations ago, but certainly in the time of Abraham. There's still sickness and disease and death and hardship in our world, but as 21st century American people, we are shielded from so much suffering in the world. First of all, commonplace illnesses that have been cured by penicillin and other antibiotics, which would have claimed the lives of many children just a few hundred years ago, many adults just a few hundred years ago, are now swept from away our vision. Why? Because of advances in modern medicine. Not only that, we're not around suffering all that much. First of all, the advent of pain-reducing drugs and painkillers and stuff like that allows people to experience suffering at a totally different level than they would have in years past. Also, even death itself. For instance, 100, 200, 300 years ago, someone, we don't do this much today, and maybe there's a few people in this room that live together as families, but a few hundred years ago, you most likely, as a middle-aged adult, still lived with mom and dad, or at least on their property, and perhaps even in the same house. And if mom and dad get sick, you don't take them to the hospital, they stay in the front bedroom or in the main room. And the children and the grandchildren would have seen people age, see people die. If, if someone had a baby, it was at the house. If someone lost a baby, it was at the house. Like death, hardship, suffering, all of this was commonplace. Now we're hospitals, hospice care, all of the modern advances and conveniences, one of the side products and byproducts of all of this good care that we receive is that those of us who are well in the moment are shielded from the reality that life really is hard and that suffering is real and that there's nothing in this life you can hold on to that cannot be pried right out of your fingers. And then occasionally, the pain breaks through, the suffering breaks through, where like even considering in my own life, when my magical life with four beautiful children, picturesque in every way, was shattered when my son dropped dead on our front porch. And all of a sudden, a pain and suffering broke through into our life, and the beautiful nature of this world, the world just got a little darker that day when I realized just how hard this place is. But there was an acknowledgement that took place. I was going to my son's grave a few months later, and I was walking through a cemetery in which he's buried. It's a cemetery in our community where I'm from. And I was walking to his grave, and I had noticed this section of stones, gravestones, that looked all alike each other. And there, were, there was this one headstone, and then next to it, going down the right side, were seven identical headstones all the way down. I'd never paid attention to it before, but the headstone was a mom and dad, and the seven were seven different children they had lost either in infancy or they had lost as children to illnesses. And I began to think about that. Here I am grieving one son, and it was awful, and it should be grief, still terrible and affects me to this day. But I can't get my mind around seven 
different children. And they buried all seven. Suffering was a part of the ancient world and even just the world a few hundred years ago way more than it is now. But when the suffering does break through in our day and our time, we're reminded this world is not the way it's supposed to be. Little boys aren't supposed to die. Babies aren't supposed to die. Mamas aren't supposed to get sick. Daddies aren't supposed to have illnesses and hardships. And families are not supposed to break apart. We, we all know this. And a real look, a look at the reality of this world lays the prerequisite for faith. If you're still persuaded that this world is the best thing that we have to lay hold of, then you probably haven't hurt enough yet. And God forbid that you ever do. Because it's the pain and the suffering in this world that makes us realize even the best, most precious, most beautiful things in this world can be pried right out of our fingers. And it lays the prerequisite for faith, which it is letting go for what we can see, to what we can see and hold to lay hold of that which is not yet seen but is all the same real and is a coming better world. So when you think about Genesis, Genesis is a book. Genesis means beginnings. It's a book that tells you about why the world is the way it is. So when we experience suffering, we say, life shouldn't be this way. Well, Genesis 1 and 2 in the Bible actually tells us how life was supposed to be. Genesis 1 and 2 tells us of a world it was created to be, and this is what's known as the created order. When we look at the world and say, it's not supposed to be this way, Genesis 1 and 2 actually tells you about a world where everything was supposed to be as it was. Genesis 1 and 2 tells about this created order, and it's interesting, there are two different things that are used to comment about this order. First of all, and this is, by the way, I'm going to be looking at themes in literature. Listen, the Bible is more than literature, okay? We all know this. It's inspired. It's without error. The Bible is more than literature, but it's also no less than literature. Don't miss what I'm saying. The Bible is more than literature, but it's also certainly not less than literature. What do I mean? That we're reading more than a biography, we're reading more than a biography of history. Certainly these things are true, but they're constructed in a way that we might reflect on God and who He is. And it's also constructed in a way where we might discover themes of the Bible. So the Bible essentially becomes this massive song where every part of the song starts riffing off other parts of the song. And that's why Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 are so foundational. In Genesis 1, we see this, is that creation is held in order by the skies. I don't know if you've ever caught this. This is really interesting to me. Genesis 1, let's put it on the screen here. Genesis 1, 14 through 19. This is the fourth day of creation. Keep in mind, when God started to create, there was darkness over the face of the earth. It was empty and it was chaotic, okay? And God said, let there be light on the first day. Well, on the fourth day, to ensure that the darkness of chaos would not overtake. This is fascinating how this fits together. I wish I could talk about this more. But to ensure that the darkness would not overtake the earth again, and that also to ensure that the chaotic waters would not overrun creation again, he creates the sun, moon, and stars. 
And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so, and God made two great lights, the, less, the greater light to rule the day, notice the word rule, and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and the night, to separate the light from the darkness. So let's put ourselves in the ancient mind, okay? As an ancient person, we don't know what they knew. They don't know what we know. They probably thought the earth was flat. They probably didn't understand that they were on a globe. They probably... Um, didn't understand the process of gravity and how the gravity of the moon draws in the tide. They probably didn't understand any of the scientific language that we have today, but here's what they could have observed. It doesn't stay dark because the sun comes up and refuses to let the darkness rule. So the sun rules the day and the darkness only has the power for a short moment until the sun rises. So the sun rules the skies. Also, the moon. An ancient person wouldn't have understood the gravity of the tides, but wherever that moon was in the sky, it would have affected the tides so that the chaotic waters of the ocean could only come so far. What they would have seen in the ancient world is those things up there, the sun, the moon, and then also the stars as they moved in their constellations, somehow those things controlled what was transpiring on the earth. That God had given the world a created order. Not only did he make it beautiful, he put parameters and he put things there to sustain the world in order that the world might be held in this good order. But then he tops it off. He not, doesn't allow the skies to rule creation. He only allows them to hold the order of creation. Creation itself is ruled by humans. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So here we are. This is the created order. God has pushed back the chaos of the dark. He's pushed back the chaos of the chaotic waters and the seas. He's put the sun, the moon, and the stars in there to hold all of that stuff in check. But then he doesn't say to the sun, moon, and stars, rule the earth. He looks at man and he says, mankind, you are going to rule the earth and you're going to rule the fish of the sea. You're going to rule the birds of the air. You're going to rule this and it's all going to be beautiful and perfect and they lived in harmony you can read about it in genesis chapter 2 they lived in harmony in a place called the garden of eden where mankind lived in harmony with the animals where there were no diseases there were no catastrophic weather events there was nothing out of the good order of god everything was perfect and beautiful that's how god made the earth to be nobody died everybody lived every day was awesome and Everyone's work was not for, for survival. Everyone's work was for enjoyment. Tending the garden as opposed to working the ground in order to scrape by to eat were two very different things. But of course, 
The created order gets marred by sin. You know the story. Genesis chapter 3 through 7 tells us how sin enters into the universe because of human beings being deceived by the devil. Sin enters into the universe, and all of a sudden, this beautiful, peaceful, almost magical like place, okay, is now the shadow has been cast upon it. Now there's disease. Now there's death. Now there's all kinds of suffering in the world. And then to top everything off, human beings are now creating death and suffering for each other. Because when you look at Genesis chapter uh, 3 through 7, we get to Genesis 6, 1 through 6, which tells about the world right after the fall of man. In Genesis 6, 1 through 6, it says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that wicked, the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Leave that up there on the screen. Here's what I want you to see. What had earth become? It had become this place of chaos where you used to have this perfect world where the darkness only could go so far, where the chaotic waters could only go so far, where man lived in harmony with the animals and there was no death, no disease, no suffering. Now this world is collapsing. This world is collapsing because now even humankind itself, rather than peace and harmony with each other, are tearing each other apart. And God's good creation is becoming not just the way it's not supposed to be. The word used to describe it is violent. It's violent. That's what Genesis chapter uh, 3 through 7 teach us. But then Genesis chapter 8 through 9 tells us this. Genesis chapter 8 through 9 contains one particular set of verses that is so important for understanding the Bible. One of the frequent, frequent criticisms of the Bible is this. How can you take a book seriously that honors a man like David who had an affair with a guy's wife and then organized for that man to be killed? And that man's supposedly the man after God's own heart. Even I know that that's a bad thing. How could you take a book like that seriously? Or how could you take Jacob seriously? Didn't he have all those wives? Didn't he do all this crazy stuff of deceit and all those things? Listen, the Bible is a joke because all the characters in the Bible are seriously flawed. Didn't Moses kill somebody? Didn't, wasn't Samson a womanizer? These are the so-called heroes of the faith. Are you serious? Genesis 8 is so important to understand why and how God works in history. Genesis 8, 20 through 22 says this, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, this is after the flood, and took some of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Such a key statement. Never 
will I again strike down every leaving creature as I have done while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God is saying I'm never going to flood the earth again because keep in mind, the waters represented chaos. The flood would be allowing decreation, the collapse on God's good created order. But here's what I want you to see. God acknowledges in Genesis 8, human beings are just evil from birth. They're selfish, and it's just what I'm going to work with. And the reason every character in the Bible is seriously flawed is because every person in history is seriously flawed, barring one man. I was reading about an episode. I didn't watch much of it growing up because I wasn't allowed, probably for good reason. But... uh, a TV show that used to come on called The Simpsons, probably still does. But Homer Simpson, I was reading about this. He picks up a Bible and he looks at the Bible and he says, wow, he says, this, is, this is crazy. This book is so preachy. Everybody in the book is a sinner except for one guy. And it's like, yeah, actually that is. Like Homer's right about that. The Bible is like kind of preachy in the sense that everybody is seriously character flawed except for one person. So when you read the story of the Bible and you're bothered by how could God use a person like that because the person like that is the only kind of person that exists. We are all like really flawed. Some of us flaunt our flaws just a little more than others, but we're all really flawed. And Genesis 8 is so important to remember in that. But then Genesis 11, not only do we recognize in Genesis 8 that humanity is corrupt, Genesis 11 tells us what humanity does when it has a fresh start. God came in and he wiped out all the wickedness in the flood. And then he tells them, be fruitful, multiply, spread out, and make a better world. And you know what human beings do? They say, I think we're going to stay right here. Build a tower. We're going to make a name for ourselves. In fact, Genesis chapter 11, 1 through 3, it says this. It says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick and stone and bitumen for mortar. And then verse 4 won't be on the screen. But it says, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed on the whole face of the earth. What do we learn? After God wiped the slate clean by wiping out all of the wickedness in the flood, that the corruption of humanity was still there, the world is still broken, and that to get back to God's design is not going to occur through judgment. There has to be something else, and that is redemption. Redemption. Which brings me to the next thing. Genesis 12 tells us of what the world is going to be, and that is the redemptive order. Genesis 12 tells us what the world is going to be, and that is the redemptive order. The story of redemption starts in Genesis 12 with what God is going to do through Abraham. So, Keep the parallel. Remember remember what I was saying? That the Bible is certainly more than literature, but it's certainly no less. When you're thinking about the way the first part of Genesis is structured, 
You have the order of creation held in place by the sun, moon, and stars. Now you have the order of redemption, which is not what God is doing in physical creation, but what God is going to do in humans through one family. But instead of the sun, moon, and stars holding the physical creation in check and the created order in check, now human beings are going to be the ones to hold in check this redemption story as God works through them, which it should come as no surprise to us that Abraham's descendants are ultimately going to be called to become as numerous and to be as the stars themselves. That this new redemptive order of what God is doing in Genesis chapter 12 is bringing a better world, and it begins with Abraham. So principle number two, God began his redemption with one man. God began his redemption plan with one man. We've already acknowledged that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. I mentioned in the first service, one of the things you probably know about me, I love fishing, love especially fishing when it's cool outside, which is not right now, but I love fishing. I love especially fishing for crappie here. I've caught quite a bit of them. In fact, if you're a senior adult, September the 7th, we are having a fish fry here at the church where we're giving away the fish because I don't want to get in trouble with the law. You can't sell wild caught fish. I, we are going to have a fish fry with fish caught at my, by, by me because I have a freezer full and I need to stay in accordance with the law. The law of the land in Mississippi, as I understand it, it is Twice the daily limit you're allowed to keep for every available fisherman in your house. At least that's how I remember it. Maybe I'm wrong. Some of you all may be experts in that. Well, I've counted up the available fishermen in my house. Me, Andrea, even though she fishes, she does. All right? Right? And then Ashlyn, Adeline, Kate, Ainsley, Lucy, Peter, and Mirabelle, our dog. So there's... I could, <laughs> but I'm getting pretty close to having enough fish in the freezer, so I need to get some out of there so I can catch some more. So you come on September the 7th. But one of the things that I learned is uh, Mississippi Department of Wildlife puts out some great stuff, y'all. And they put out a magazine that they put out uh, four times a year. It's a quarterly. That, I think it's Mississippi Outdoors is what I'm remembering it. But in one of the articles this uh, past time, and there's a chart in there that talks about the mercury content in our waters. And I didn't realize this until I started fishing that all of our natural waters just about in the United States are contaminated with mercury. And that affects why certain people can't eat fish and why, for instance, those carrying babies shouldn't eat but only so much fish, stuff like that. And I was just reminded when I was reading that, that, that uh, quarterly, I was like, man, the world really is not the way it's supposed to be. Like, even in something like that, we're not even talking about the big things of society. We're just talking about, like, this world is, like, broken, right? What's, what's God going to do to clean up this mess? What is God going to do about not just fixing the environment, but more so fixing the corruption inside of human hearts? It's Abraham. He's not using sun, moon, and stars. He's not using fish and amp. No, God's using people. And he moves to that. So here's what I want you to see. Several things. First, God began his redemption plan with one man, Abraham, specifically Abram. And he did this when he was a pagan. I want you to look at Joshua 24, verse 15. It'll be on the screen. 
This is later when Joshua is reflecting back on earlier parts of Abraham's story. It says, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river. Here's what I want you to see. God called Abram when he was a pagan. Because remember Genesis 8. Genesis 8 says everyone's corrupt. And everybody's got a major problem. It's not that God looked out and he's like, oh, Abraham, finally a guy I can work with. No, 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 no. You read Abraham's story, the first thing he does is he cons another guy and he allows his wife to go into somebody's harem. It's terrible. He has serious character flaws. Don't forget, Genesis 8, God only uses corrupt people. But the emphasis of Genesis 12 is not what Abraham's going to do for the world, but what God is going to do through Abraham for the world. Notice it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go, and I will make a great nation. I will bless you. Abram, you do this, and this is what I'm going to do through you. Abram, you're not the answer for the world. I'm the answer for the world. I'm just going to use you. God called Abram when he was a pagan. Secondly, God called Abram where he was, in Haran. Now, what's fascinating about this, if you look on a map here, in the bottom right-hand corner, you can see Ur of the Chaldeans down here in ancient Mesopotamia. Then you see Haran up there in northern modern-day Iraq, and then you see Damascus and Canaan down here. That God called a man from over here and brought him up to Haran and then down here. And he called him right where he was. This is not a man who was where he was supposed to be. He was just a guy. And God called him right where he was. Second, a third under this is that God's call to Abram would not go away. It's one of the things that Stephen points out under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, because Genesis certainly doesn't talk about it. I want you to read it with me in Acts chapter 7, verses 2 through 4, when he's speaking to the Sanhedrin. And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. How about that? Before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go from your land for your kindred and go to the land that I will show you. Go to the next one. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there to, to this land which you are now living. We're told in Genesis 11 and 12 that Terah, Abraham's father, was moving his whole family to Canaan. But for whatever reason, Terah stopped. Frankly, if I had to guess, it's because his son died. And that tears your world up when that happens. But then God continued to speak to Abraham. You want to know how you know when God is working on your heart? It won't go away. How do you know when God is speaking to you? He won't let you go. He won't let it go and he won't go away. And even though God spoke to Abraham, put the map back up, down when he was in Ur of the Chaldeans, and then he went to Haran and stayed with his family. God spoke to him again and said, no, you follow me. The call of God would not go away. Which brings me to the final thing, which is this. Is that faith begins with a willingness to exchange the known for the unknown. Three quick things here and we'll be done. Again, what did I say earlier? The Bible is certainly more than literature, but it's no less than literature. And when you're writing a story, you create parallels that contrast and riff off each other. Abram's story is the exact opposite of Babel's story. Abram's story is the exact opposite of Babel's story. God creates a new people and a whole new world out of the flood, after the flood, and he says, all right, spread out and go to the unknown places. And they say, no, we're going to stay right here and just 
build a city right here. So they do the exact opposite. And what's interesting, they say, we're going to stay here so we can make a name for ourselves. But then Genesis 12 comes along. And God says the same thing to Abram. Spread out from your family and go to the unknown place. And I'll make your name great. And Abraham lets go of what he knows and he sees to lay hold of what is not tangible but is only found in trusting the promises of God. Faith is a trade-off that's built on a promise, which brings me to the final thing. The exchange of faith leaves a mark. The reason we're still having this story in the discussion today is because Abram's life, this journey was a decision of faith. This text says he was 75 years old when he made this change in his life. Most of us at 75 are settling down. Abram said, Lord, if that's where you want me to go, I'm going to go. Maybe it's because his brother died. Maybe that actually helped him get to where God was leading him. I don't know how it works. But for whatever reason, Abraham said, listen, I can't hold on to anything in this life anyway. Lord, if that's what you want from me, you can have it. And this idea of faith begins here in this story of trading what we can know and hold for the things that are only known by God. You know, every week when we talk about trusting Jesus, you realize we're asking people to trust someone they cannot see. I'm asking you to trust someone you cannot see. We get this from Abraham because Abraham didn't see God either. Or at least at this junction in his life. But what Abraham did see are the promises of God at work in his life. And what you and I have to come to a conclusion about is is it safer to hold on to this life which is made up of even at its best, stuff you can't hold anyway? Or are you willing to let go of this life to pursue God and wherever he may lead, even if it's into the unknown, to lay hold of the unknown, things which cannot be lost? As we go on this journey of faith, I pray that God would work in our hearts to be able to answer that question as individuals and families. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray you would take this word and allow it to speak to our hearts in Christ's name.